Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Bot Sheva Marcus. She is the co-founder and clinical director of Mays Women's Sexual Health, the largest independent women's sexual health center in the United States. For 20 years, she has overseen the treatment of thousands of women ages 18 to 81. Dr. Marcus's professional work has been profiled in numerous publications, including the New York Times Magazine. She is often referred to as the Queen of Vibrators, and her latest book is titled Sex Points, Reclaim Your Sex Life with the Revolutionary Multipoint System. We're going to be talking about her new book and how everyone, at any age, in any situation, can have better sex. We're also going to discuss common sexual problems and how to fix them. This is going to be an amazing and very informative conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Botsheva, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So to get started, I always like to ask my guests to tell us a little bit about their professional journey. So can you tell us how you got into the world of sex therapy? What's the story behind how you got into this business? So I think my story is probably incredibly atypical. This is sort of a second career, but a long time second career because I've been in this field for 20 years, a little more, maybe closer to 25 at this point. I was organizing not-for-profits and I had a master's in social work and I was basically managing not-for-profits, you know, sort of bigger and bigger not-for-profits and getting a little bored and... A friend of mine said to me he wanted to open up specialty laboratories and would I come work with him to set those up? And honestly, I had no background in science. Not that much interest in science, Justin, if I'm being honest, but I love challenges. I love new things. So I said to him, sure. And I kind of jumped in. I was pregnant with my third child and I said, I'd do this for like a year or two. That was 25 years ago. So we opened up a laboratory, specialized in fertility laboratories. I had to learn it all very quickly. And he was a specialist who only did male infertility and male sexual dysfunction. And just in the first year or two that I was working for him, Viagra came on the market. I always laugh a little bit because I feel like this is like world according to Bacheva, like history 201 according to Bacheva. I could be totally wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm actually right about this. So Viagra comes on the market. This is 1997. And it basically undercuts a whole field. There are groups of researchers, doctors, pharmaceutical companies. They're all working on getting guys erections and being able to keep erections for men. And they're making a lot of money. It's a very big field. Viagra comes on the market and it basically kind of undercuts the field, right? For an $85 prescription, you can walk into your primary care doctor and you no longer need complicated medications. Sometimes you do, but mostly you don't need injections. This pill will solve 70% of men's problems. So all of a sudden, I'm sitting there with this doctor who's a specialist in male sexual dysfunction. And what we're seeing is that all the pharmaceutical companies, researchers, physicians are thinking, oh my God, what are we going to do next? And I feel like that was the turning point for female sexual dysfunction because a lot of them started getting involved with women. They started feeling like, oh my God maybe there's actually physiological components to this. And it was like a breakthrough moment, I think, because I feel like we're so good at blaming everything on, I'll call it the head, this mind-body split. And I don't think that's very useful. So I feel like 
that point, I was so excited by this. And I went back, I already had a master's in social work. I went back to get some private training and assessment. We opened the Women's Center. I went back and got a master's in public health and then ultimately a PhD in human sexuality. As we, I was learning. I was learning from my patients. I was learning from the research that was coming out. I was learning honestly by a lot of trial and error, which you'll see in this book. And I think kind of everybody benefited from this because I was such an outsider coming into this field. I felt like I was able to see things in kind of a clearer way. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's always interesting to ask people how they got into this field. And I find that there are often these unexpected twists and turns that our lives take in terms of how people arrive in the world of sex therapy, education, and research. Now, Something else I love is that you're known as the queen of vibrators. And in fact, your doctoral dissertation was on vibrator use. So can you tell us why you love vibrators so much and what you think everybody should know about vibrator use? Yeah, I'm not even sure where that queen of vibrators, my <laughs> patients call me that. Well, the truth is that once you get started with me talking about vibrators, I could just talk forever. So I feel like, Justin, we're in a very different place than we were 20 years ago or 18 years ago when I wrote my dissertation. Because more and more women are using vibrators. I think the statistic now is 55% of women use vibrators. However, first of all, I'm shocked that it's 55% and not 95%. It should be 95%. I feel like vibrators are the most underused tool in women's sexual arsenal. Like of all the things that are out there, there are other things, but of all the things that are sort of easy to, you know, easy to access, easy to learn to use certainly not harmful in any way, shape, or form, easy to access for like most people. Vibrators make sex more fun, more pleasurable. They help women have orgasms. Anything that's going to help a woman have an orgasm or get more pleasure is going to make her sex life better and make her have an easier time having sex and want to have sex. And women just don't use them. And the reason they don't use them are kind of wonky reasons. Like they feel like they're not natural or they shouldn't need to, or they're afraid their partners aren't going to like it. So those are all the reasons women give. And I feel like, oh my God, like of all the things that are easy, you know, to sort of talk through and help people work out, those should be things that are. And so I'm like a big fan of them. I feel like they, they don't solve every problem, Justin. Like I'm not like, I'm not, a vibrator will solve all your problems, but for many issues, they can be incredibly helpful. They get you points. As like my book talks all about is like, where do you garner points from? Like, where do you get points from? And I feel like one super, super easy way is vibrators. Yeah. And it's true that vibrators are underutilized. When you look at nationally representative surveys, you know, it is somewhere around half of women who say that they've used a vibrator at some point in their life, but it's a much lower number of men who have used vibrators or sex toys. And what the data and research show is that regardless of gender and sexual orientation, people who use sex toys, including vibrators, tend to be more sexually satisfied. They tend to be happier in their relationships because vibrators and other sex toys can provide new and different forms of stimulation. They can also help to fix certain sexual problems and issues, including relationship issues that people might have. So I think you're absolutely right that by engaging more with vibrators and other toys, we have the potential to really enhance our sex lives in a lot of ways. Right. And I feel like for women in particular, it's so critical because you know, we, we still, as much as there's 
hundreds and thousands of us out there trying to debunk this myth that women should have orgasms from intercourse. We somehow cannot, you know, from penis and vagina alone, women should be able to have orgasms. I can't seem to uproot that. Like to my mind, that's like the world is flat. The world is round. Like it's such basic information. And, but it's so endemic to everything, like the movies, the TV shows, like the, the novels we read. And so, so getting women to this idea that it's much easier and sort of a better direct route to pleasure. If you go after the clitoris and you don't pay that much attention to the vagina always every single time. Um, and vibrator is just a really, really easy way to do that. So, and I tell you, I laugh because I speak to medical school students a bunch and you would think medical school students, what do you think, Justin? I, maybe this is me, but like the statistic that 30% of women have an orgasm from penile penetration alone, only three out of 10 women, like they are shocked by that number. And I feel like that number is everywhere in every women's magazine every month. And the idea that 70 to 80% of women can have an orgasm from a hand or mouth, but that 90, somewhere between 92 and 94% can have one with a vibrator, like that should be basic basic information that we're giving people and somehow we don't. And that just takes, it just, you know, sometimes sexual issues are complicated. This one is not complicated, Justin. This one is super <laughs> easy. And like, that's why when you asked me like the queen of vibrators, like, I feel like my job is kind of get out there and like talk about this. And I, I could talk for hours on it, but I will now be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's true that most of us never got the sex education that we really needed and deserved. And that includes doctors and healthcare providers, right? There's actually surprisingly little sex ed that happens in medical schools. And so when people with sexual difficulties go to a physician for help, oftentimes the doctors don't know the right questions to ask or the best way to help somebody with a specific sexual problem just because so little of their training is focused on sex. And you know that's something I've talked about on the podcast before, but something that we really need to address in the way that we're training people who we entrust to take care of our sex lives for our entire lives. So Let's talk about your new book for a little bit. It's titled Sex Points, and it's designed to help people analyze themselves and the factors that are affecting their sex lives. So can you tell us a little bit about how this works? What's your approach? And how can people use this book as a tool for getting their sex life back on track? So... Yes. It, it, it's. I laugh because people hate math and this ends up making them feel like there's going to be math involved. The New York Times, when they did the review, said it was Sudoku for stooping, which I thought was <laughs> hysterical. Here's the deal. I, I feel like most women really get overwhelmed when their sex life isn't working for them. They just feel like at a loss, so much so that most of them don't even try to deal with it because they're like, they're not quite sure what the problem is. Like they're having some pain or maybe they're not and they just don't really want to have sex. But they don't get turned on or their orgasms are harder. Like there's just a mess. Like, and so I created the system just to help them put it into some kind of perspective. Like I want to say to you, it's not that complicated with a little bit of know-how you can kind of categorize this and then kind of know where to begin to fix it. Really, that's really the issue. Like how do you know where to begin to fix your sex life? short of running off to a counselor to do couples counseling, which in a lot of cases is not going to help you. So I just need to put that out there. So it starts with a questionnaire. It's a very basic questionnaire. It's 32 questions. It's, there's nothing tricky or subtle about this questionnaire. It's very straightforward. But it, I think it helps women sort of ascertain themselves as to, oh, wait a minute, this is what I'm experiencing. This feels like me. This is describing me. I have an online version that you can find if you can take the book and you can just click away. So if you don't like to add and subtract and tally things up like me, it's no really calculators nice. needed. <laughs> no calculators needed. Exactly. And at the end, you end up with a score in four areas. Desire. I don't 
maybe want to have sex or I'm not that interested in having sex, arousal, I am maybe interested in having sex, but I don't get turned on. And women mix those two things up all the time. And I try very hard in the book to explain the difference between them. Orgasm problems, like I never had one, but also I used to have one. They're echoes of what they used to be. There's so much work at this point. It's not worth it. I don't know what happened. My orgasm went on hiatus and pain, which I think most women, you know, and a lot of women kind of discount the little bits of pain that they have, and that can actually have a significant impact on their sex life. So when you're done with this questionnaire, you end up with this snapshot of like, how many points you have in these areas? And again, it's not a chemistry experiment. It just gives you a snapshot. And then and then the book set up like choose your own adventure. If your points are low in this area, try chapters 8, 12, and 15. And if your points are low in this area, try chapters 9, 6, and 12. And what I'm hoping women will start to glean and understand that usually if there's a problem in your sex life, number one, there wasn't one single problem. It's not like you're looking for what is the problem, Bacheva, like a light switch that's off and on, that it's a, it's an amalgam. It's a combination of so many different things. You're constantly getting points in your life, like your, your, your health, your hormone levels, your relationship, the kids banging at the door, your use of vibrators or not use of vibrators, your fantasy life. You know more about that than anybody else, Justin, right? All of those things are either giving you points or taking away points at any given time. And you need to hit a certain threshold, like 100 points is what I call it. You don't need 160. 160 is great. And that's the, that's the most you could get from this questionnaire. But you, if you hit this 100-point threshold, you should be good to go. And that every woman can figure out by looking at all of the various options that I lay out there, where they may be missing points and why, and where they can be getting points back. So... That is sort of an overview. It sounds more complicated than it is. I try to make it super, super simple. Sometimes I give an example and that makes it easier, but that is an overview of the book. Yeah. So the short version is you've got a hundred points that you're striving for, and there's all kinds of things that can subtract points or add points. And so in your book and in this quiz, you have different point values assigned to everything that's happening in your life. And I guess a, a question that some people might have is, where did you come up with those point values? And is that, you know, arbitrary or is it just sort of like a rough approximation? Like, how do you figure out like how many points to assign for say vibrator use versus, you know, something else? Totally arbitrary. I just threw a dart at the wall. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> no, no. So I've been working with women for 20 years and I've come over the years to kind of realize which things are total deal breakers, right? And which things will help a little bit and which things will help a little more than those things. And I say it very clearly in the book, this is not a chemistry experiment. It really isn't. It's not like you can add four here and three here, but it's clear to me, for example, that if your hormones are in the toilet, if you have really bad hormone profile for a woman, it is going to be very hard for you to get your desire kicked back up you know, given that you're in a ready, steady, ongoing relationship, it's going to be pretty hard to do that. If you can get your hormones to some kind of, you know, static place, which works and you're, you know, there's boredom that's coming in, or it's just harder to have orgasms for a variety of reasons because your hormones have dropped a little, let's say, then a vibrator could help or relationship kicker could help. There's certain things that just serious pain, Justin, like I will tell you, serious pain is a deal breaker for most women. That's going to take away a huge chunk of points. And I can just tell you that from having worked with women. So this is just kind of know-how. Looking and talking and speaking to women, I've come up with what feels to me like these give you, if you need a nudge, this is going to give you 10 or 20 points. If you need, you know, a BB gun, this is going to give you five or 10 points. If you need the cannonball, here are the things where you might want to be that looking That sounds at. kinky. 
Yeah, exactly. With the cannonball? With the cannonball? <laughs> yes. I, I'm like, well, I have not seen a cannonball kink. Have you? That's fascinating. Not yet, but I'm sure it exists. If, so if you funny. can think of it, there is porn for it, and someone has fantasized about it. It's hysterical. I just finished watching Bonding. Do you know the show on Netflix called Bonding? Yep. Have you seen it? So anyway, so I was like, okay, the penguin fantasy was amazing. I just hadn't <laughs> seen that before. Yes, and that's one of the things I love about studying fantasies is you learn something new every time you ask totally. people about their fantasies and people are just endlessly inventive, creative, flexible. And I think that just speaks to the adaptability that we have when it comes to our sexuality. And ultimately, I think that that's a, a positive thing that we can be turned on by by almost anything. And so that allows us to be just a lot more flexible in right. the bedroom. Right. One of the things I talk about, one of the chapters of the book is this whole fantasy thing, which is I kind of feel like where, again, I feel like this is me talking to you, which is ridiculous about this because you're like the king of fantasy. I'm the queen of vibrators. You're the king of fantasies. <laughs> but for so many women, they shut down their fantasies. And that just takes away so many points from them because you and I know like you need fantasies and you need your brain to be kicked into this or it's not going to work. Yeah. So, so this point system you've developed, it's sort of a metaphor for thinking about your sex life and kind of like where you need to be if you're experiencing some type of difficulty and what you can do to kind of get those points back that will get your sex life back on track. So one of the things I like about the system and about your book in general is that you don't try and oversimplify the problems that people are having in their sex lives. You know, there's a common tendency for people to think like, oh, for every sexual problem, there's just a logical medical explanation behind it. And all you need to do is take this pill and you can fix your problem. But that line of thinking is really problematic, you know, when we really oversimplify things and we always take that that sort of direct medical approach and always go toward a pill for the quick fix. And, you know, certainly it is the case that sometimes it's a hormonal imbalance that is the primary cause of a sexual problem, or there is something that can be fixed by a pill. But we have this tendency to just want to take that approach and put it on every sexual problem. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why that line of thinking is problematic and why we need to take this really comprehensive look when we're right. diagnosing and treating sex problems. So I have that level of frustration in both directions, to be honest with you. I feel like you can't, it's so clear to me, you cannot hand somebody a pill or a drug of any sort and expect things to just get better. I mean, sometimes they do, but more often than not, they don't. But the flip side also makes me crazy, which is that we think that we can sort of talk our way into fixing every problem. And so I see so many women who are blaming themselves because they feel like they're obviously not trying hard enough. Like they're in these long-term relationships and they just, they're either their desires are a problem or their arousal is a problem or both of those things are a problem. And they, they've tried everything. They've tried the, you know, make sex dates, schedule the sex, you know, buy the sexy underwear, buy the vibrator. And, and they're stuck because their hormone profile is really low and they're blamed. They fall into this blame game. And so what I think is so critical with themselves, in other words, they're, they're, they're so, they're so beating up on themselves for, or they're on the birth control pill. And that's really done a number on them and they don't realize that. And again, I really have to say I'm not anti-birth control pills. For some women, they work fabulously. For some women, they seem to be problematic. But I think until we back up, Justin, and say, listen, our minds and our bodies are all part of the same machinery. And the more we can get a handle on every piece of it and understand each part of it, 
the better we're going to be able to f- solve the problems. And the irony is that it's that makes it sound so complicated. Oh my God, I have to like know my well, the medications I'm on, the medications I'm not on, the hormone. Like I need to know all that, and I need to know my relationship and you know my lifestyle and. But I'm what I'm saying to you is it actually simplifies everything once you get this picture because all of a sudden you're like, it's a light bulb goes off. You're like, I can't touch the following things right now. I have two little kids. I'm exhausted. They're pounding at the door. I can't do that. But that doesn't mean that I can't have a sex life. And what I might have to do is look at some of the other things that may be impacting on my sex life. And so it's like a constant sort of low thrum of my sex life is is changing. My life is changing. But here are all the places where I'm losing points right now, or maybe I could get some of those points back if I knew to look for them. And I should look at the whole picture, the physiological and the psychological and behavioral and emotional. And the last time we spoke, you and I were talking about the fact that you know this really is a psychosocial as well as biological approach. And that I really feel like, I think it's the answer to all medicine, to be honest with you, but I for sure sexual health. Yeah, it's fun to speak with you again because I, I think you have a lot of great ideas and knowledge to share and and a you know fresh perspective on some of these issues and a different way of talking about sexual problems and a way of quantifying that for people that they can sort of easily understand and apply at home. So I appreciate the work that you do as well. Something else I want to talk about with respect to your book is there's this line I really like in it where you talk about how great sex is not a singular permanent destination. It's an ongoing exploration. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that and why we really need to shift the way that we think about great sex? Yeah, it's so interesting to me that people feel like somehow in our communal psyche, people kind of learn how to have sex. They're, you know, 15 or 18 or 23 or whenever it is they learn how to have sex. So for some people that road is pretty smooth and good. And for some people it's extremely bumpy. It takes a while for them to get to where it feels good and things are working for them. And then somehow people feel like that is the way their sex life is going to be for their whole life. Like somehow their idea is that this is it. This is what sex looks like. This is this is how I like to have sex. This is what feels good to me. This is what works for me. So this is, you know, and the idea that at 23, the same things are going to work for you as 35 and 50 and 75 and honestly 85. And I don't know older than that because that's the oldest patient I've ever had was 80, 81. So it's just absurd. It's absurd because the same way you may look at an exercise program, like when you're 18 or 21 and you're running marathons, you're not going to be probably able to do that at 40, right? Either your knees are going to give out or you're not going to have the time to do that or your relationship is such that you you can't train every day for, you know, an hour or two hours or whatever it is a day that you're running or you have a back problem or you don't like it anymore. It's just not, it's not giving you the joy that it used to give anymore. And now you decide you want to try mountain climbing or you want to try, you know, hula hooping, which is what I've started doing. Or you decide <laughs> you want to, you want to just do yoga because the idea of something that's, you know, more stretching is better for you. Like that is how our sex life needs to be addressed. Because as soon as you think that your sex life is going to be static, then when you hit a road bump, which is going to happen, right? It's going to happen. Your your relationship changes. You've been with the same person for a long time. You change your medications. You have children. You move to a new place. Your work life becomes more stressful. For any of those reasons, you change, your body changes, your relationship changes, your lifestyle changes, and your sex life changes. And the more you're aware of the fact that every, you know, every year your sex life is going to be different 
even when we are with the same person, every year your sex life is going to be different. It then it sort of prepares you for when you hit road bumps, which we're all going to hit. And you can like say, oh, big deal. I lost a bunch of points. This is what's happening. I lost a bunch of points for this reason, or I'm not even sure why, but let me see where I can get points back that are different points. And that is exactly the model that we need to think about when we think about our sex life. And if that's the case, your sex life will last you in good stead for, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, which is what it was meant to do. It wasn't meant to just, you know, look like the same and then kind of peter out because you're not the same anymore. Yeah. So as you get older, where you get points and what takes away points, all of this stuff changes, but you can still always get to a hundred points no matter where you are. You just have to figure out how to compensate. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's not like once I was giving this spiel to a bunch of medical school students and they just, they looked so horrified and they started laughing. Like they were like, you're making this sound terrible, but because I was saying, you know, like you'll be in a relationship and then like you get on birth control pills and then you get pregnant and then your desire changes and then your partner has erection issues or, you know, and they just started laughing. Like this is like a nightmare. And I'm like, but the whole point is that everything is totally fixable. If you go in with the idea that that's, that's life and that having good sex is your right as long as you kind of know that it's going to be changing and you need to just be looking for different answers to different problems. Yes. And I love that perspective. So we have so much more to discuss, including common sexual problems and how to fix them. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Promescent has everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom. It has Target's own technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is sex therapist, Dr. Batsheva Marcus. Now, Batsheva, let's talk about common sex problems and how to fix them. So first up, let's talk about low sexual desire. We know that low desire is one of the most common problems in the bedroom for people across gender and across sexual orientation, but it's a more common problem for women than it is for men. So for example, in nationally representative sex surveys, you find that about one in three women and one in six men say they've experienced an issue with low sexual desire in the last year. So what is your advice to people who might be struggling with low desire? How do we fix a problem like that? So um, I'm laughing a little bit because I feel like I should be able, in 30 seconds or less, I should be able to tell you how to fix low desire <laughs> because like half my book is about low desire. But here's the situation. And I just want to talk about women's low desire for the moment because that's definitely an area I understand better than male low desire, although I'm guessing they're similar. So women, you know, one of the things that comes up is that our erotic brains are not crazy about familiarity and repetition, right? So when you're in long-term relationships, it does make the desire 
sort of a bigger issue. It, it's something you have to suddenly work on. And people are very resistant to the fact that they have to work on desire. They feel like desire should be this like magic pixie dust that just sort of, a, they should be a wash in it. And, you know, I'm here to tell you that does not happen. It doesn't happen unless you happen to be either 18 or in the first six months of a relationship, like usually, not always, but so desire is something you actually have to work on and it's fine. But for women in particular, I think one of the things that comes up is that we love to think as a society that women are naturally much more comfortable in monogamy and that their desire is fine in monogamy, whereas men's, you know, men are given permission to have to struggle with monogamy. And I think monogamy is really hard for people. And that if people choose to be monogamous, which I think is a lovely choice, and I think is a choice that is not maybe celebrated enough, we, we could have another discussion with that. But if somebody has to be monogamous, men have an easier time sort of whining about it, like embracing the fact that it's difficult. They whine about it. They make jokes about it. They complain about it. And they fantasize. They do all the things they, they want to do. And then they're really kind of happy to come back to this person that they love, adore, and want to have sex with. And they have sex with this person. And they have good sex with the person. Women, on the other hand, I think, have now been socialized to believe that they it's really something's wrong with them if they're, if they're attracted to anybody besides their husband or their life partner. And they decide that it's not okay that they have low desire for this person. And ironically, in that struggle, I think they're just making it worse. So instead of sort of acknowledging it and allowing it the same way their partners, their male partners may be doing it, many of these women just shut down. Like they don't like the fact that they're not really attracted to this lovely, amazing person who they adore and who's helping them run the house, but they are attracted to the firemen down the block. And so rather than sort of acknowledging that and embracing that and doing all the same things that the men do, they just shut down their desire entirely. And what happens as a result is that we then think of women as being the low desire part of the couple. That is, I think, one of the classic things that comes up for women. And, and so then you can kind of get from where I'm coming from that getting points back on this area would involve relocating and reaccessing the part of your brain that knows how to fantasize. Another thing people think should be magical and happen by itself, which we know is not the case in many cases, being able to sort of separate and look at your partner in a kind of a different way than you usually do, becoming more realistic about what desire can look like and should look like, and then also looking at the medications you're on or maybe could be on that can actually boost you in this area. Like if you're, we talked about this, if your hormones are like gone, 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 that's an issue. And that's an issue for a lot of perimenopausal and menopausal women or other medications that we're on could have a dramatic impact on this as well. So I do think this is manageable and doable and really a good goal for people to get your desire back again. And some of it is giving up this romantic notion that desire is something that just lands on you, that you just wake up one day and you're like, oh my God, where's my partner? I cannot wait for it. Like, that is just a very unrealistic Disney-esque version of desire. Yeah. Something I'm thinking about with regard to that answer and for the other sexual difficulties we're going to discuss is that you always need to figure out what the cause of the problem is if you want to identify the correct solution because, you know, desire and other sexual problems can have different causes for different people. But just to add a little bit, of extra data to what you were saying. You know, there is research showing that women's libido, their desire does tend to drop faster and more profoundly for women than it does for men in heterosexual long-term monogamous relationships. And so 
That's where a lot of this talk has come from. And we don't like that. We don't want to acknowledge that as a society, I think, right? We, we're very right. uncomfortable with that, right? Right. And that's where a lot of this talk has recently come from, where we talk about how monogamy may be harder on women than it is on men in terms of their their sex drive. And so tapping into fantasy, I think, is a really important part of that, because you're right that men and women are socialized in different ways around sex and how they think about sex. And in my own work on sexual fantasies, I find that women's fantasies are much more adventuresome than most people give them credit for. You know, And if you look at the history of sexual fantasy research, it suggests that you know women are into passion and romance and that's you know sort of the primary thing that turns them on but i see that you know actually a lot of women have fantasies about a wide range of adventuresome activities and kink and so forth and so part of getting that desire back comes from embracing those fantasies and and maybe exploring more of your sexuality so can i tell you that i feel like i spent half my life trying to help women stop feeling guilty like yeah you know, they just, they feel guilty if they're fantasizing about somebody besides their regular partner. They feel guilty if they're fantasizing about something that should, is not PC. They feel guilty if they're fantasizing about something that feels like kinky or abnormal. Like it is so frustrating to me to hear women like blocking their fantasies because somehow they have an idea, a preconceived notion of what those freaking fantasies should look like. And that's just not how fantasies work. And that's not helpful. So, you know, women can have amazing fantasies, but we also do an incredible number on ourselves shutting down those fantasies. And once you've shut them down, it takes some work to like jimmy that back open. It does. It, absolutely. So let's talk about another common sexual problem, which is pain during sex, which you mentioned earlier in the program. If you look at nationally representative studies, you find that 7 to 8% of women and 2% of men say that physical pain is a common problem they've experienced during sex in the last year. So again, we know that different people might experience pain for different reasons, but what are some common ways of dealing with painful sex? Oh, so the most common way is to go to your doctor and your doctor say, don't worry about it. We all have the same problem. Or yeah. another common way to handle it is for the doctor to say, have a glass of wine and relax or use more lube. Like those, literally, that that is how women are, that is how the medical industry handles pain with women. It makes me insane. So maybe we don't want to talk about common ways. We want to talk yes. about effective ways. Thank you. Of dealing Thank with you. Exactly. Pain. Exactly. Exactly. So I feel like for women to understand what is causing the pain is absolute tantamount. And I also have a nice hefty section of this book on that, especially because what going back to what we were talking about before, where we said, you know, sex doesn't static, it just changes all the time. It is very likely that you at some point as a woman, we're going to have pain at some point. And especially for younger women, they're like, really? Because I never have any pain now. But if you, you know, either are trying to get pregnant, are pregnant, are post-pregnant, are perimenopause or menopausal, often things will come up that do give you some kind of pain. And once you understand that those pain syndromes, vaginismus, vulvodynia, dyspareunia, um, vestibulodynia, I have to laugh, Justin. I feel like I make this joke all the time, but like, I feel like the medical community has given us harder and harder names for these conditions so that women will not complain about them. Like that's <laughs> like, if they don't, if they can't say the name, they will not complain about them, but they come from t- 
tight muscles. They come from hormonal problems and they come from neurological issues. With neurological being a very, very small sliver of it, most of them are tight muscles and hormonal and therefore extraordinarily treatable, extraordinarily treatable. And, you know, I could certainly run through them all with you, but with a little bit of know-how, with a little bit of information, a lot of women could treat, self-treat on a lot of these things, but for sure help their gynecologists help themselves, right? Help them, right? If you go into your gynecologist and you say, I'm pretty sure given what I've read that this is a tight muscles issue, the gynecologist is usually very happy to help. It's just that the gynecologist, as you said, medical training is just so poor in these areas. That's my quick primer on pain, but I obviously have a lot more to say, but you know, I, again, I could go on for hours about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's helpful for people to know, you know, sex shouldn't be painful unless you're a masochist. Exactly. But, <laughs> right. Unless you want it to be. If yes. you want it to be, that's great. Unless yes. you want it to be. And it's usually women don't usually choose to have the pain in their vagina when they want painful sex. Right. Okay, just so we're clear. Some of them do, but the most important message is you don't have to live with pain. Like when somebody calls our center and they have low desire, they have arousal problems, I always say like, we can make it better and we can usually make it a lot better, but can we get you back to 100%? Not necessarily. If you call up with pain, Nine times out of 10 or 99.9%, I will say to you, this is a home run. You just come on in. We will get rid of you. So you need to understand that you don't have to live with pain. And I just, I feel like that's such an important message because you, you can't even imagine. I mean, the, the statistics you mentioned, I said, you said 8% or 9%? Yes, yeah, 7-8%. In the last year. And the statistic yep. for lifetime is like 70%. It's like something really high. And I feel like women just give up. They give up. They go to one doctor and they just give up. Yeah. And sometimes it's important to seek a second or third or multiple opinions on these issues because, as we mentioned, you know, a lot of people don't have specific training on this. So it's important to do your research and homework on who you're going to go out and find to help you deal with your sexual difficulties totally. to make sure that they're qualified and competent uh, in that area. That's why I spent a big chunk of the book on it because I felt like if you go in as an educated consumer, it makes all the difference when you're talking to the doctor because the doctors want to help you. They really do. They just don't always get it. Yeah. So another common difficulty I want to talk about for a little bit is difficulty orgasming, right? So the desire is there, the arousal is there, but they just can't seem to get to the point of orgasm. And if you look at statistics for the last year, about one in six women and one in 10 men say they've had difficulty reaching orgasm. And if you look at over the lifetime, the numbers are uh, much higher. So what's your advice to people who might have trouble reaching orgasm? So this obviously has a very big difference between women who've never had an orgasm, at, which often that's an issue of education, like time and patience, reducing your stress level on yourself, stop trying to like be so goal-oriented learning how to do it using vibrators. And then this huge swath of women who had orgasms and then either aren't having them anymore or feel like they're just getting harder to have or they're echoes of what they used to be. And I feel like that group of women often gets ignored because for the reason we were talking about earlier, like people, again, they think like once you have your sex life, that's the way it's going to be. And women, I think, do not realize how often your orgasms can change, again, based on what's happening with your hormones, what's happening with your hormones because of birth control, what's happening with your other medications like SSRIs, right, the, the anti-anxiety medications, what's happening with your hormones because of pregnancy, childbirth, menopause, blood flow has changed, you know. So for all of those reasons, 
women have sometimes a harder time having orgasms. And that again is a matter of like looking at the whole picture. Like what has changed from your medication perspective? What can you change? What can you control? Sometimes you can't. You need to be on certain medications. Your perimenopausal or menopausal. I've had women come in like really sad. Like they basically couldn't stop having orgasms. And as they hit, you know, premenopause and their doctor said to them, well, that just happens to all of us. And that's really sad. And I was like, well, hell, that doesn't happen to all of us. It's, yes, it may happen, but it doesn't have to happen to all of us. And so, you know, there are, you know, Wellbutrin is a great medication that could be incredibly helpful for this. Strong vibrators, and we're going full circle back to the beginning, like strong <laughs> vibrators can be unbelievably helpful for this. Again, the way you had an orgasm might not be the way you currently can have orgasms, but that doesn't mean that you can't have an orgasm a different way now. And I feel like if a woman comes in and says, I used to have orgasms and I'm not having them anymore or they're weaker, that's another home run. I can say like, we can get those back again as well because we just, again, need to understand where the points are being pulled away from that and how to get the points back for that. Yeah. So what about the issue of women who have never had an orgasm though? Because I often get asked this question. In, in fact, when I used to teach a college human sexuality course, I would allow students the chance to anonymously submit questions and then I would answer them. And I would have a lot of questions from college-age women who would say, how does a female orgasm even happen? Like, am I ever going to have one? And, you know, readers of my blog who are more advanced in age have also written me similar questions like, I just don't seem to ever have orgasms. So how do we deal with a problem like that? So that's a really complicated question, Justin. So I'll say a few things. One is one is something I call with some of my patients subclinical orgasms because I, I like to separate out orgasms for women. So if a woman comes in and she says to me, I'm getting turned on, I'm getting turned on, I'm getting really, really, really turned on, and I'm so frustrating, nothing happens. I'm ready to – like I have that pre-orgasmic feeling, but nothing happens. That is fundamentally different than a woman who comes in who says, I'm getting really, really, really turned on. I feel really, really, really good. And then I feel like I'm done and I'm relaxed and I'm happy and I'm okay, but I, nothing actually ever happened in there. So those feel like two fundamentally different experiences to me. And I don't think anybody's done research on this, but I can tell you for a lot of women, when I talk about it, they like jump up like, oh my God, somebody gets it. So those are things I've termed sort of subclinical orgasm. Whatever's happening, whatever neurological shoot off that has to happen has occurred because their body's going back into a relaxed state and they're feeling good about it. And that is... In my mind, that just has to be normalized. So that's number one. It's the other women, the one who have this like buildup that never seems to shoot off. And we know that there's a certain subset of women who can't have orgasms. And I feel like we have to, at least at this point, what we know scientifically, we have to be honest about that. Like, right, the highest statistic we have is the women who can have orgasms with vibrators. And that's somewhere between 92 and 94%, depending on what study you're looking at. But that still leaves 6% of women who seem to not be able to have orgasms. That is assuming, Justin, that we've done the job of educating them so they know where the orgasms come from, the clitoris, or different people have orgasms in different places, but primarily the clitoris. It's some kind of combination of all the neurological stimulation. They've been able to get adequate stimulation, even as far as using a strong vibrator, which is usually the most easy, effective way for a woman to learn how to do it eventually. And they've given it time and attention. There will still be, we don't like to know that, but there will still be some women who just don't seem to get to be able to have an orgasm. I think that has to do with the parasympathetic nervous system. We don't totally get it. it. If you want to ask me about my biggest frustration, it may be that. Like, I feel like I wish I could solve that, but that's the best answer I have. Does that in any way address that? 
Yeah. And, you know, maybe this is something that will be addressed in the future of sex and the way that we incorporate new technologies to help people deal with sexual problems. And so, for example, decades ago, a doctor, Dr. Stuart Malloy, actually developed an orgasm implant. And this was for people with disabilities to assist them in having an orgasm. And basically, it's an implant near the spinal cord that can trigger an orgasm at the push of a button. And, you know, this technology exists, and it's something that could be incorporated more in the future of sex for people who have those orgasmic difficulties or for people who have disabilities or other issues that make orgasms really difficult or impossible to have. So I think it'll be really interesting to look at, you know, what's going to happen in the future of sex and will we develop technologies that can help to fix problems like this and for some people give them an orgasm for the very first time in their life Um, but for me as a social psychologist i can't help but also wonder well would everybody want an orgasm implant you know if they could just give themselves an orgasm at the push of a button and do you you think so i i don't that that argument would be similar to like some women are afraid to use vibrators right because they're afraid that they're that either they'll desensitize their clitoris or you know and what i always say back is like you know, there's no research that suggests you actually do any damage to your nerve endings by using a vibrator. And for a short period of time, you probably do raise the level of stimulation you need. And it goes back to normal if you wait for some time to go by. But different kinds of sex people, yes. Like if you could, here's my, if I could like wiggle my nose and have dinner made, yes. A lot of nights I would wiggle my nose, have dinner made. But a lot of nights I would also want to do the chopping and the sauteing and the and the cooking because that's a different experience and it's one that I want to have either by myself or with somebody else. And so, so I feel like we should, I'm a big believer in technology and choice. Like I feel like if we could have a machine like that, which would be amazing. I mean, I was thinking more medication because, you know, Mm -hmm. some of these medications, we know what it's doing when it's making it harder to have an orgasm, right? So when the the SSRI are raising the serotonin levels to make it harder to have an orgasm if you're on Effexor or Lexapro, it should be starting people's brain thinking about how to switch it off to make it easier for people to have an orgasm, right? Like that theoretically... I feel like the more tools we have in our toolkit, be that implants or be that medications or be that fantasies or be that vibrators, like it's just everybody's going to gain because you have to figure out what works for you at any point. I don't personally see a world where everybody's going to want to have an orgasm with the push of a button. (laughs) I just don't see that. But they might want to have it at home in case they are in a rough patch and they have little kids and they want to be able to have orgasms and they don't have 15 minutes. (laughs) Well, I think it would probably ultimately depend on what do people see as the ultimate goal of sex? You know, and some people look at orgasm as the ultimate goal. And so they rush through everything just to have that orgasm. And they don't take that time to savor and enjoy the other aspects of of sexual activity. And, you know, there's a lot of pleasure to be had in sex and and the buildup to sex. And I know a lot of people don't like the term foreplay and, you know, but you understand what I'm talking I, no, about? No, no, no. Yes, I'm one of the people who hate that term because I think all of it is sex. Everything yeah. you've described is sex. But I do also think that there's value to both kinds of sex. Like sometimes you just want to go for that orgasm. And that's people shouldn't be ashamed of that either. But you're right. When you get totally fixated on one thing or another or like just getting to that orgasm, you're just losing a lot on the way. It's like getting to your destination and not seeing the flowers, you know, and the beautiful scenery on the way. Yeah. Enjoy that scenery. It's very nice. It is. It is totally. It is totally nice. But sometimes you do know, Justin, sometimes you just want to get there. Like you yeah. just have to, right? Okay. Sure. Like you're tired. You got to, you want to go to bed because you got to get up the next morning or whatever. Or it's, it's an afternoon delight and you got to get back to work. 
and you and your partner haven't had sex in a while and you want to feel close and you just want to just be together for five minutes and your little automatron or whatever the hell it is will make that easier. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it. Yes. Sex can be anything and everything you want it to be. So my last question, this is just one other sexual problem I want to briefly touch on. It, it's more psychological. It's the issue of sexual anxiety. And we see that a similar number of men and women, about one in 20, say that being anxious during sex is a problem they experienced in the last year. And sexual anxiety can take a lot of different forms. It might be stemming from guilt about your sexual fantasies or wondering whether your fantasies are normal or whether your body or genitals are normal. Or it might stem from pressure to perform a certain way in bed or to orgasm at a certain time or feeling of pressure to fake an orgasm. So how do you deal with a problem like anxiety in the bedroom? So that is one area where I think talking is incredibly helpful. I feel like either talking to a therapist or talking to your partner or even talking to your friends. Like I feel like this is one of those times where so much of what we feel is anxiety is our need to normalize. Like we just feel like there's something wrong with us. Almost every example you just gave, like I should orgasm at a certain time or I shouldn't orgasm at a certain time or I don't know how I feel how I look or, or we don't think we know what we're doing or we have expectations on us. All of those things I think can be really helped by bringing them out of the, the guilt and the shame lives when something isn't addressed and looked at. And somehow when you take it out and you talk about it, it's amazing what sense of relief there is. And so if you can't get yourself to talk to your partner about it, then maybe talk to a professional until you can talk to your partner about it. And that's why I laugh sometimes the intake appointment at our center where we haven't actually done much of anything sometimes. People just go out feeling lighter. Like they finally said all these things that are making them feel so anxious and ashamed. So talk about it. Great advice and really speaks to the importance of sexual communication with your partner, but also, you know, being willing to go out and seek help, whether it's with a therapist or counselor or medical professional, to be able to talk about and verbalize your sexual problems can be such a relief to so many people because they've just never talked about it before with anyone. So thank you so much, Batsheva, for this amazing conversation. Of course, when you put the, the queen of vibrators and the king of fantasies together, it's going to be there a good you go. time. Right. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This was really so much fun. And I'm such a fan of your book that this was just like such a, it was such a joy for me. Well, it was a pleasure to have you here. So can you tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you, connect with you on social media, and get a copy of your latest book? So Dr. Batsheva, that's my website, dr. Bacheva, B-A-T-S-H-E-V-A. That's that's my website. That's my Instagram handle. That's my Facebook, that's Twitter. Like that's where I am, Dr. Bacheva. And your book is available pretty much anywhere books are sold. And it's titled Sex Points. Yep, anywhere books are sold. And 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 buy it. And if you like it, put a review on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, authors really appreciate reviews. So thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, to learn more about the science of sexual fantasies. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>